We want to acknowledge that Carleton University and the other locations where we make this podcast are on traditional, unceded Algonquin territory. On this episode, we chat about teaching first-year classes in sociology and anthropology. We catch up with Alexa Shotwell and talk fiction, writing, and academia. And we'll be telling you about some of the upcoming talks and events in our department and in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. This is Seminars and Social Science Fiction. I'm Philip Primo. And I'm Billy Flynn, and you're listening to The Department. We're here. We've done it. Billy, we're live with a podcast. I'm already drunk with Powerful. <laughs> is, that, uh, is that an Irish whiskey? Powers is the whiskey. Yeah, uh, 1791. Oh, yeah? Oh. First company to bottle whiskey. What a way to start. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everyone. This is the Department Podcast. Uh, it does feel, indeed, like just a few weeks ago, Billy, that we had the idea to start this show. Uh, now it's here. I guess now we have to make no it. No pressure. Yeah, none, none. Uh, and we've already received requests from people who want to be guests on the show. How amazing is that? People actually want to talk with us, Billy. Well, I wonder if we would have had such a response if we went with some of the other names of the show that we were initially throwing around. Billy and I went back and forth. Um, quite over, a lot. Quite a lot, yeah. Uh, some of the names, uh, I have a list. So I've printed a list. Uh, so we ended up with a department podcast, but uh, in alphabetical order, here are some of the ones that could have been uh, a learned ed life, a lifetime learning. Behind the pedagogy, between the chapters podcast. Beyond the lecture hall. Beyond the slides. So between the slides was already taken. And I think that is an amazing podcast title. Um, so I had dog-eared, but, and then the ED was kind of like ed, so dog-ed. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I had hackademia, which uh, kind of ended up sounding, I, I wanted it to be like a life hack, but then it sounded like we were hacks and then other people thought that we were trying to teach people how to Yeah, we don't do hacking. Test. Yeah, nah. no, we don't cheat. Right. Uh, okay, another one that uh, Billy suggested uh, was the Higher Education Learning Podcast, which is help. Uh, <laughs> kind of like, help us, yeah. help us. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, key points? Mm-hmm. Could have yeah. been, yeah. Mind and matter? A little bit maybe to like uh, STEM, mm-hmm. you know, maybe yeah. if we're doing an astrology uh, slash uh, psychology podcast, True. that could that could have been good. True. Uh, we had studied again with the ED, right? <laughs> Stud ed, studied, but then I was like, uh, we're not studs. Yes. So, yeah. We, the Department of Speculation. <laughs> okay. So I think this is a great title, right? Uh, but it's also a kind of like, uh, it's a book, a uh, feminist-leaning book and uh, about marriage. And uh, interestingly, uh, Roxane Gay actually reviewed this book uh, for the New York Times. And this is a true story. Oh, okay. Yeah, Fair the enough. Department of Speculation. Huh. Uh, the Soan Hub or the Soan Zone, but uh, I thought that people might confuse it with the Sewing Zone. So, yeah. <laughs> Billy and Phil do crochet this week. <laughs> Uh, transparent translations. This is something that I thought of. Comes from uh, Walter Benjamin, but then it actually doesn't mean anything. Yeah, sounds cool. Uh, walking the halls. Yeah, it's yeah. Cool. we all just wander eventually. Yeah. Uh, and here's another one that I kind of enjoyed: uh, will to learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, stemming from maybe a little too Foucault. 
maybe. Yeah. yeah, Goodwill Hunting kind of pops to mind as well. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, we had a hard time deciding on the department podcast, but ultimately, I think it works. Yeah. Yeah. So this brings us actually to our first point of order. So who we are. The first episode, episode zero, didn't have very much, or at least not much, about who Billy and I are. So uh, I assume, uh, well, not really, because uh, we got sent a question. Uh, who are you guys? What do you guys do? Uh, the question wasn't worded so nicely, but uh, we'll go with that. So, Billy, won't uh, you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right, so I'm uh, Billy Flynn, and uh, for the past three and a half years, I've been uh, working full-time in Carleton as an instructor. Uh, previous to that, I was uh, working briefly at the University of Ottawa, uh, and before that, at UBC, where I did my grad studies. Um, so, uh, yeah, basically for like three or four years, I've been working in the department. Yeah. And uh, you have your PhD? I do have my PhD, yeah. yeah. So hopefully that's still valid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what was your dissertation topic? Uh, my dissertation topic was on uh, backpacking and travel and uh, looking at how uh, backpackers, guidebooks and uh, kind of travel agencies um, sort of uh, understand and uh, frame uh, uh, the countries that backpackers go to. Neat. And uh, I've, I've come to learn that you're also an avid... Uh, Skier, cross-country skiing. I do like cross-country skiing, actually. I've uh, discovered, uh, well, Gatineau Park and uh, oh, yes. amazing uh, cross-country skiing there. It's pretty awesome, yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's me. How about you, Phil? Well, I am currently a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Carleton University. Um, before that, I did my MA in Sociology at Carleton as well. Uh, before that, a uh, couple other things that I did around youth and uh, at-risk youth. Okay. I've worked in government, I've worked in nonprofits, I've worked in private, I've, I've done a variety of things. Okay. Yeah. What's your, uh, what's your research on? My current research is around the concept of resilience, and um, I'm looking at how the Rockefeller Foundation and other not-for-profits and philanthropic organizations have used the concept of resilience in their work to mobilize uh, certain forms of capital. Okay. Sounds, uh, sounds pretty relevant and interesting for today's world. I hope it is, and I hope to be defending very soon. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, are you a skier, Phil? I don't ski. Right. No, I don't ski. I'm more of a snowshoer. Okay. You know, yeah. flat-footed, not too fast. Yeah, yeah. Take breaks when I want. Sounds good. And uh, you and I, Billy, first met, I believe I was assigned to TA for one of your courses several years ago. Uh, and we've done a few things together since. I think uh, I did a brown bag teaching uh, thing that you organized. Uh, and then you attended a podcast workshop that I put together. I did. And uh, I think I've teed for you a bunch of times now. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been four or five times uh, at least, right? Um, and um, I think yourself and Tanya Davidson uh, and Matt um, mm -hmm. also did uh, the podcast workshop that I attended. And uh, it was there I realized that uh, actually making a podcast uh, required or uh, was a significant amount of work. So I loved the idea, but avoided yeah, it yeah. Uh, as I was kind of busy at the time. Uh, we also did an audio textbook chapter. Uh, it was one of the chapters of my textbook that uh, I kind of basically turned into an audio book or we turned into an audio book. Uh, a few of the students like that, uh, you know, they're kind of tie, uh, kind of clued into sort of audio and podcast stuff. I invited you to do a brown bag on uh, pedagogy and storytelling, which was that's right, yeah, yeah it was super interesting, and um, yeah, a bunch of other kind of like uh, TA related stuff. So yeah, here we are today. 
So I think maybe this is a good place to segue to our next item to talk about on this episode, Billy, a little bit more on theme this time. And that is the first year seminar courses at Carleton University. What are they? Why are they, I guess, a novel way to teach undergrads? And uh, what's your take on them, Billy? Uh, so um, I've, this is my second year or second time teaching a first year seminar at Caltrain. Uh, first time uh, co-teaching one with a colleague, Mike Mopas, uh, called Creative Sociology, uh, the Art of Critical Making and Production. And uh, one of the reasons why I, I'm kind of drawn to uh, first year seminars is that they allow you to do uh, kind of interesting topics, you know, and uh, sort of see how the students respond to those topics as well. Uh, they tend to be, or they all are quite small, under 30 students. So it's a nice kind of seminar size class. You get to come up with a bunch of different course topics and design, see how the students like it. Uh, you can be experimental. Uh, and uh, there's two colleagues of mine, uh, Tanya Davidson and Matthew Hawkins. Tanya's in sociology, Matthew's in anthropology. Tanya's doing a superb uh, first year seminar on the sociology of Ottawa, which uh, is a very kind of experiential uh, sort of course. And uh, Matt is doing one on the anthropology of sports. So uh, kind of in our department, there's a wide range of... Uh, Interesting, to interesting topics, and hopefully we'll expand on that in the coming years. Yeah, and recently there's been uh, an announcement of a writing course uh, at Carleton designed, uh, co-designed, I believe, with a student and uh, faculty. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, the uh, president of the SASA, the Sociology Anthropology Student Association, uh, Felicity uh, Howard, uh, and uh, faculty member Alexis Shotwell uh, are currently working together under the student partnership program. Um, and basically what they're going to do is they're going to co-design or come up with uh, writing courses aimed at first and second year students uh, to help them improve their writing skills, teach them about, you know, writing process and so on and so forth. So, you know, very, uh, very uh, interesting stuff, uh, especially directed towards the first and second years. Yeah. So when I was an undergrad, uh, mm -hmm. I did not experience these sort of courses. Yeah. Right. I was kind of seated in a hall with hundreds of other students, a wave of textbooks flying around, very little interaction with the actual prof. These seem like they're small class sizes and you get an intimate experience. Yeah, sure. I mean, there, there's like, you know, if there's 25 students in a class or 20 students in a class, you know, each class lasts about three hours, right? So you get a lot of time to actually work hands on with the students, have a lot of interaction with them, get to know them. They get to know you a bit as well. So it kind of allows for a lot of latitude uh, that you don't really have in those large, uh, large lectures that I also uh, experienced uh, as an undergraduate. And now I, I teach many of them. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what do you think the implications are for like student creativity? Um, I think uh, because there's, you know, kind of a smaller class size and you can be a bit more experimental with things, uh, then it allows for students and yourself to. Um, you know, to try out maybe different kinds of assignments that aren't, uh, you know, uh, you don't try it out with 100 or 900 students. Uh, so uh, you can try out different kinds of assignments. So, for example, uh, in the first year seminar with Mike Mopas, Creative Sociology, the students have to uh, produce a comic, create a comic using uh, software uh, that we got and installed in the, uh, the media lab up in uh, the sixth floor of the Sodom Hall. Uh, they also have to uh, create a zine, which is like basically a mini magazine, uh, and also do a mini podcast uh, at the end of this term too, as well as a traditional essay. So there are many different sets of tools that uh, get that can get students uh, and people in general to think about the world around them. 
uh, that don't have to be the uh, traditional tools that we work with in academia, research papers, essays, right? Uh, of course, there are, those are absolutely essential. Uh, so they can be supplemented with uh, less traditional types of uh, kind of knowledge representation and uh, knowledge earning as well. Yeah. So it's interesting that you should broach the topic of writing uh, because later on in this episode, we're going to hear from Alexis Shotwell, an interview that you conducted with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she deals with the topic of social science fiction in sort of the way that you just uh, explained. Yeah, so maybe you can tell me a little bit about what exactly you mean by social science fiction. <laughs> well, okay, so that took like a whole episode before getting into <laughs> it, right? Uh, social science fiction. Uh, I mean, I think it's a shared interest of ours. Um, but yeah, what do I mean by that? Um, so sometimes it's called political science fiction. It has less to do with space and technology and more to do with social issues, uh, social commentary, generally in the novel, uh, kind of long form novel format. It can have utopian as well as dystopian varieties. So some authors include Ursula Le Guin, Ray Bradbury, Samuel Delaney, Robert K. Heinlein, Doris Lessing, etc. Um, it can be, or at least it has been, kind of speculative. It's based on speculation about what humans would do if. So think of cataclysmic event, end of the world sort of thing. What would the human race do? What would societies do? So it has a close tie to sociology and anthropology as the genre reflects what the world could be or tries in some way to offer a reading of how things could be different, that things do not need to be the way they currently are in the way that uh, sociology and anthropology approaches a lot of its issues as well. So in essence... What it's saying is that there are alternatives. And I think it's a common theme, if not in most of today's sociology and anthropology works, imagining different worlds, imagining how we could live differently. And Alexis, I think, uh, talks about this much more eloquently than, than I do. So one more thing that I'll say about social science fiction is in an article published in Scientific American a few years ago, Ada Palmer social science fiction author and history prof at the University of Chicago, says that her book series offers, quote, enormous detail in the historical and social science questions of state formation, legal history, identity groups, linguistic development, and how these affect political events. But three books into the series, I haven't yet explained the engineering of my flying cars, Hmm. not because I haven't planned it out, but because it has never moved to the foreground of a narrative where social science questions reign supreme. So in a few moments, we're going to listen to the uh, interview I did with Alexis, uh, I think it was last year, uh, if I recall. Yeah. 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 And uh, I'd done recorded interviews before, but that was basically for my, my PhD thesis, right? So it was a very different setup. Um, there was a big microphone on my face, um, really smart colleague across the way with uh, tons of radio experience as well. Bill listening uh, over in the corner and recording in minute detail, two-track high-definition detail, by the way, to every <laughs> rasp puff and a hiss in my voice. Uh, So all in all, for me, a very comfortable situation. Yes. So let's get on with that. Before we do, a few places where you can find the show. We have an email address. It is at info at departmentpodcast.ca. We are on Twitter at departmentpod. We have a website. That's at www.departmentpodcast.ca. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, a bunch more. Uh, Probably your favorite podcast app. If we aren't, and you're listening to us through some devil magic. I don't know how you would, but uh, let us know and we'll see if we can get on it. So Phil, you've done a, like an amazing amount of work in terms of uh, making sure that uh, the podcast 
uh, and the department uh, gets accepted and circulated on iTunes, on Spotify, Google Play, and all these other kind of platforms yeah. that I uh, yeah. don't know much about. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when it comes to uh, social media, I'm not the most, uh, I would say, up-to-date or sort of practiced in that. Uh, I was teaching a, in, uh, one of my social classes, my introduction to social classes the other day. We were talking about the culture of texting and uh, one of the students mentioned Snapchat, which I kind of know the idea yeah. about. Yeah, sure. Um, and I said, well, you know, um, when you click on the file to open a Snapchat message, and <laughs> that was met with uh, kind of like a lot of laughter. Yeah. So I kind of felt, uh, felt a bit out of touch and a bit old, but you know, that's life. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you open a Snapchat file. Yeah. That's not how you... Click on the message, whatever you do with it, right? I'm not on Snapchat. Well, you're I don't... I, 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 yeah. Yeah, so on the topic of submitting to these uh, podcast directories, it's actually quite a lot like submitting a journal article. Uh, so you have the initial drafting, because you need at least one episode to send to these directories. Okay. Um, and then there's the endless sort of perfectionist reviewing of what you're going to submit, right? right? So you revise, review, um, and then there's a deadline. So ultimately you have to hit submit. So you send it off into the ether. And that's when the self-doubt party really kicks off, right? So in my mind, I'm going... Um, okay, so while I'm waiting, the website says I should get an email, but I didn't get an email. Maybe I did something wrong. Oh no, I did something wrong. I ruined it. I failed. Oh, there's the email. Oh, it's all good. Okay, so now I have to wait again. Uh, okay, I suck. It won't be accepted. Uh, where's the next email? Uh, there should be an email. Maybe I should get an email. Maybe I should email them, right? Because mm -hmm. people do this, right? Uh, you know, uh, How's my submission? Where's it going? Oh, there it is. Okay. Oh, it's accepted. Wait, that's it? Just accepted? Like, was it okay? Was it good? Was it great? <laughs> just send me like accepted. I, I need more. It's endless. It's endless, Billy, at least with me. I can relate to that. And I'm sure uh, a lot of people uh, who are listening can also relate to it in a, maybe a different context, but same process, right? Maybe, hopefully we get a chance to talk about the cycle with someone uh, on the show eventually. Wow, that brings me to my next point, which that was a little bit of a tangent. But if you are on Apple Podcasts, if you use Apple Podcasts or something like Podchaser, yes, we are on Podchaser. Regardless of the platform, we'd love you to give us a rating and some reviews. And while you're at it, we'd love to hear from you as we get the show going. Uh, we really hope that you take a few minutes to send us your suggestions or segments. Uh, what do you want to hear? What do you want us to talk about? Or maybe you have something to say about sociology anthropology or higher education more generally. Maybe you're a grad student or an undergrad taking your very first university class. Share your thoughts with us. Mm -hmm. You know, they're very important. Ooh, let's get on with it then. Let's get on with it. Yeah. Hi, my name is Alexis Shotwell. I teach in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Carleton University. I've been working here for six years, and I usually teach courses in theory, uh, disability, emotions, feminist theory. And most recently, I've been teaching just about uh, writing, how to have less suffering and horror. I do research on impurity and complexity and complicity, so what to do about the fact that we're implicated in things that we think are horrible. Um, and that means that I think a lot about huge problems and how hard it is to solve them. So uh, pollution, contamination, uh, capitalism, climate change, global warming, um, 
-hmm. energy usage, extinction. There's just lots of bad stuff. And I think about how people keep hope in the space of horror. Outside of work, I have developed a weird obsession with weightlifting, especially like snatching. And I'm a functional potter. Because you mentioned you were part of a feminist radio collective. Yeah, yeah. I started doing radio in high school okay. um, and then university. And so I took over. There was a the longest running feminist radio show in Canada at the time was called Spinsters on Air. Spinsters on Air. Okay. And uh, so I took that over when I came back from university and held it. And then when I moved to Santa Cruz, I got involved with Free Radio Santa Cruz, which is a pirate radio station that was housed in the basement of a collective called Zami House, named Zami. named after Audre Lorde's brilliant biomythography. And, uh, and so then I was doing, um, mostly I did women's music programming and uh, and then I was part of a feminist, a feminist radio collective that that did news and interviews, and we would rotate. You know, there were I think eight of us most of the time, and we would rotate through holding holding those sessions. So yeah, so I did a lot of um, kind of like feminist media production. And at the time in the U.S., there was a when I was in grad school, there was a a big movement of independent media producers so trying to really look at what it meant to not rely i mean this was sort of as the internet was coming along and um so what it meant to do radio and of course this matters a lot right now as so many of the like i trained to do all that stuff on campus radio in in halifax and in montreal uh so right now in ontario you know people are not going to be able to do that anymore with the cuts that the Ford government is making. Um, yeah, so I think about that. I imagine working in radio in the way that you described the cooperative kind of setup, you're, like you said earlier about the teaching, I imagine it's just like, hey, what do you know? Can you show me how to do this? And then is there a lot of kind of collaboration or kind of teaching each other how to do stuff in order to kind of cover the, the program? Or Yeah, and I think that was definitely, so politically I'm an anarchist mm -hmm. and that was an anarchist explicitly okay. an anarchist collective right. and the approach there is is this kind of perpetual pedagogical approach which right. is um which is one of the things i'm working on academically okay. right now mutual aid okay. so uh what does it mean for people to offer what they have and receive what they need as a as an ethic as a practice um but also that sense that you assume that everyone you encounter has um fundamentally something to offer or teach. So I think one of the things that I like, I think a lot of us in the department have a commitment to, you know, particular practice of pedagogy as liberatory, right? And as a, a space in which we can be um, not assuming that we know what people are, what they know, what they need to learn, what they're gonna become. So I think those years working in Santa Cruz with Free Radio Santa Cruz were super, uh, like super frustrating, really a lot of the time. So when you work in decentralized um, mutual aid kind of situations, automatically people are um, 
just takes longer than right. authoritarian hierarchical structures. Less the, Super, yeah, yeah, less efficient. And, and also, I think, interestingly, and I don't know how this plays in terms of thinking about academia, but for sure, when you have such social situations like that on the left, it's also one of these places where people who have maybe been rejected from conventional society find a place where people are committed to not giving up on each other. And that means that sometimes you get really wonderful people who have been given up on. Sometimes you also get just total assholes who are only tolerated in spaces where people right. are like, we're going to try to, you know, take care of each other. So, yes. Uh, so sorry, I took us a little afield. No, no, not at all. No. You know, you mentioned uh, about mutual aid, right? Mm -hmm and having a kind of an anarchist sort of uh, approach. Mm. Uh, I mean, what does it mean somebody like myself who wouldn't be that familiar with sort of anarchist practice? Uh, what would that mean to somebody who who's never really heard of anarchists? If you were to explain what's an anarchist approach or, yeah. you know, mutual aid or, yeah, yeah, would you be able to sort yeah. of? Yeah, I think that's such a good question because, you know, usually colloquially when we say, oh, it's just anarchy out there, what we mean is... Um, it's just a total mess and people are being horrific and right. um, and it's uh, people are awful to each other. And that conventional understanding, I think, comes from um, a view that says that the only way that people are going to be good to each other is if they are forced to be good to each other and that what we need is uh, fixed hierarchies that will prevent people from being awful. Um, so that makes sense if the vision of the world that we have is that everyone is fundamentally bad and resources are basically scarce and people are going to do whatever they can to get what they need and they'll be awful to each other. That's an accurate understanding of what it's like to live under capitalism. Um, and what's interesting is to look at how many of people, how many spaces in people's lives, actually that doesn't function like that at all. Um, so being kind of theoretical about it, we can say, well, anarchists believe that people are not fundamentally bad right. and that in our basic orientation to the world, humans are interested in helping each other and yeah. that generosity is actually kind of basic and that that uh, gets torqued and twisted because of social circumstances that we're in. Um, so a lot of things follow from that, but sometimes what people point to is like, this morning I was riding my bike to the gym and um, I looked over, I was waiting at the stoplight. And a couple of things, one is just, you know, people. a lot of people run red lights in Ottawa but mostly people don't actually try to hurt each other, right? Yeah. So everyone was stopped at the stoplight. And I looked over, and there was a man who was sitting on the ground. Um, and it was clear right away that something bad was happening. And there was a woman sitting with him. And he um, had fallen and I think probably broken his arm. Um, and so this woman had been crossing from dropping her kid off at the daycare there at uh, Gladstone and yeah. um, and uh, so she'd gotten some blankets to prop up his arm he couldn't straighten it or move it and they were waiting for the 
you know, and it was just kind of gradually more people came around and turned out his car wasn't too far away. We wanted to get him up off the snow. So we walked him over. His son arrived. Someone had loaned his phone so that son could be called. So it was a really organic um, thing that happens all the time. When someone's hurt, people just are like, how can I help? You know, like, what can I do? Um, when, when big disasters happen, when you actually study it, it turns out people overwhelmingly are trying to help each other. So in um, many of these cases, we see this kind of against the logic of capitalism that people take time out of their day. They want everyone to be all right. They, um, so that's the kind of practice of it. But there's this whole theory, which is really coming out of a, um, a guy named Peter Kropotkin, who okay. uh, sociologists claim, geographers claim him, I'm claiming him. Uh, and he wrote a book called Mutual Aid, which was basically like, look, uh, Darwin did say that evolution was about survival of the fittest. But Kropotkin was like, I think there's something about the place that he was studying evolution, the Galapagos, which has a different kind of um, way that pe that beings get on together. And Kropotkin was studying like birds of ungulants on the Siberian steppes. Right, okay. And he did like studies on various animals, including humans. Um, he was like, look, it turns out, I think, that evolutionarily the strongest are the beings that help each other out. And it seems like there's actually like much more symbiosis and co-evolution and helping each other than competition. And certainly that group survival is what actually produces evolutionary um, goodness. So yeah, so I've been working through that idea about mutual aid with Ursula Le Guin, who's a science fiction writer who really has some super interesting formulations of mutual aid. And there's a whole tendency, I've been doing a bunch of stuff on impurity and complexity. And uh, so when you start looking at kind of compost, fermentation, what it means to have an ethical relationship to your own gut, your own microbiome, what it means to have an ethical relationship to rivers and ecosystems and the world, uh, you start feeling like actually attuning ourselves more to mutual aid as we go into a period of unbelievable climate catastrophe and an extinction crisis is a pretty good way for us to think about what it means to not despair about the possibilities for the world right now. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine um, mutual aid will become a necessity, right? Yeah. An increasing necessity. Yeah. Um, even as well as something that's desirable as well, or a solution, right? Right. Do, do you think that science fiction has any part to play in um, sort of presenting people with maybe, you know, uh, visions or dystopian or utopian uh, alternatives uh, or critiques of the current society? Do you think, you know, fiction and science fiction can yeah. play a role? Or Yeah, I mean... Samuel Delaney, who is one of the great science fiction authors of our time, uh, he said, you know, science fiction isn't imagining the future. It's, it's, offering a, um, it's offering a way to understand the present, right? right? Yeah. Through, but at the same time, there's been this really lovely uh, tendency emerging from people thinking with 
Octavia Butler, who was a science fiction writer. Um, so a crew called Octavia's Brood. Okay. And they've been really saying, look, every social movement is science fiction. It's trying to create something that doesn't yet exist. It's trying to imagine a world beyond the world that's being offered to us, which I think is also what we do fundamentally sociologically, right? We say, right. what is this world that we're in? And what does it mean for us to imagine that this isn't the way it has to be, mm-hmm. that the world could be otherwise that it is? If we take seriously the fact that everything we are and everything we think and everything we feel is shaped by the actually existing world, you know, we do have to ask the question of like, how then do we imagine the possibility that things could be otherwise? And one way to imagine that possibility is to say, it's just like science fiction author William Gibson is widely but maybe inaccurately quoted as saying that the future is already here. It's just not very well distributed yet. Uh, So we can say the future really is already here, both in terms of like amazing technologies exist, but also uh, incredible suffering exists, Mm -hmm. right? So people are already experiencing climate change. People are already experiencing extinction crises. So it's just not distributed. And right now, the people who are rich get to evade some of the effects of their own actions. So at the same time, we can say the the field of possibilities, the field of imagination is already here. It's just not very well distributed. So in the midst of a, a logic that says everyone has to just take care of themselves, no one will help anyone, you better get a gun and store up your you know, canned food. Um, There are also people that are actively, rigorously practicing visions of life that are much richer than that, much more uh, interesting, much kinder. So that's one way to think about science fiction as speculation, that it's refracting those actually existing possibilities. But also it gives us different ways to think about what's what's feasible, what's possible, what's going on. And... So it's really interesting to look at the kind of incredible proliferation of dystopian um, stories in all kinds of different media, and especially the ones that are looking at um, pretty near, sort of near-term changes, like things that are just a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So uh, those, those stories, we can read them as like, um, this is a terrible vision of how people are going to be. Uh, or we can read them as, look at how many people are still trying to get on together after total collapse. Um, and in that way, I think a lot about my friend Kim Talbert, who is really, um, I think, appropriately grumpy at settlers and white people who are like, sort of like, oh no, um, everything's getting really bad. And she's a, she says, you know, she's uh, Dakota, she says, my people like lived through genocide and total catastrophe. And so this has already happened for us, right? Uh, and so if you're saying this is the first time that any people have ever confronted a world-destroying force, let me just direct you to think about colonialism for a second. And so in that way, we can be like, it's not just that we have science fiction that imagines different futures. We also can say, this is 
uh, these memories are possible futures if if settlers can be a little bit less committed to capitalism and colonialism as a way of life, we might live. But it's not clear, actually, whether yeah. we'll be able to do that. No. It's a nice thought to, 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 to reflect upon, though, as well, right? Um, it's also kind of disturbing, too, right? Um, in terms of the future and uh, the past and how they how they can um, mm-hmm. kind of be organized and appear differently depending on what perspective you're looking at, you know. Um, as, as a final word, as a last word, uh, would you like to... Yeah. I mean, I think that is one of the things that I'm feeling most excited about, about this project on mutual aid, because when I reflect as a settler myself on trying to listen well to Kim and other people who say... Like settlers need to organize what's going to happen if we're going to like take responsibility for where we are. Um, the impulse a lot of the time is to say, how can we just basically like pretend that we're indigenous to this place, right? right. To stand yeah. in relations of responsibility. Right. Um, and I'm really interested in how uh, wrong and impossible that is as an impulse, right? So, uh, I have friends who are adopted into indigenous family. Totally great with that. It's not an option for most of us. And I'm really interested in what it looks like for settlers to practice relations of responsibility in this social world that we're in that take account of the way we're placed in history and that take responsibility for the future that we might participate in. And so I feel like some of these things like understandings of mutual aid as a theoretical orientation and a kind of practice that we can take up. I don't think it's the only one. I think people are doing really interesting things in terms of like, as Christians, what would an ethical response to climate catastrophe be? You know, if we're actually going to care about cops killing people in our city, right? Mm -hmm. What would we, where would we ground that? Um, But I'm really interested in how as social theorists, we can find and, um, deepen some of these approaches for, I mean, it's also like obviously lots of indigenous students in our own program mm-hmm. and people yeah. doing solid work, but how can settlers and white settlers in particular find vectors of responsibility that aren't appropriative, that right. come from our own histories and that let us actually undo the social relations that we're implicated in. Um, that part feels really neat and I'm excited about it, but yeah. Really nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you too, Alexis. Thanks very much. So Alexis actually did the interview herself, right? Uh, I was just kind of nodding occasionally, trying to sneak in a few semi-intelligent, good interview questions. and I remember after the interview, I kind of felt pretty elated. I was like, hey, interviewing people is super easy, right? Podcasts are super easy things to do. <laughs> right, yeah. You, you just do it. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, uh, thanks, Alexis. I really appreciate it. Uh, yes, thank you, Alexis. Yeah. If you are interested in hearing the whole interview in its entirety, head on over to www.departmentpodcast.ca. On that website, you will find a link to the full uninterrupted interviews that Billy and I have done. wrapping up episode one uh billy but uh, we've been out and about in the department 
uh, and the camp on campus, actually. I have. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed that you were part of was, uh, so you think you're better than a prof? Are you smarter than a prof, Phil? Oh, are you smarter? Okay. Yeah, obviously not, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it was last Tuesday uh, in uh, the Fen Lounge in Residence Commons. Uh, it was the third annual Are You Smarter Than a Prof trivia event. And basically it was a bunch of faculty and staff uh, from Soshanth, uh, as well as a bunch of uh, mainly first year, but mainly undergraduate students as well. Uh, and um, it was based on the Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader show. Right, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we had a whole kind of like electronic scoreboard, uh, loads of different kind of questions, some academic, some sort of like, you know, pop culture and stuff like that. We had a load of prizes, thanks to the department as well for that. And uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, we all had a really nice time. And the whole idea is just to kind of like socialize a bit with the students in a kind of a fun context so that, you know, takes the intimidation and the sort of social distance out of things, yeah. Yeah, and we actually have a few nice audio clips uh, from that event. Yeah. Take a listen. Hey everybody, how's it going? And welcome to the third annual Are You Smarter Than a Prof event. Hey! All right. Okay. So, um, basically, we got a... We got a bunch of um, kind of very nice prizes to be won tonight. Seven categories, okay? Sociology, Anthropology, Carleton University, Pop Culture, Ottawa, Canada, and in News, right? Each team uh, can choose from one of the seven categories. There's two questions in each category. And basically, the only rule is that you have to let me finish the complete question before you... There you go, yeah. Bang on. Okay. Up in the stakes. Up in the stakes, indeed. Okay. What is the most spoken language in the world? Is it Spanish, Hindi, Mandarin Chinese, or English? Profs, get in there. Spanish. Okay, it could be right. Uh, students, would you like to uh, hazard a guess? We're going to say Mandarin Chinese. Yes, Mandarin Chinese it is. Good stuff, students. All right, okay. What is the special topping in the Killaloo Sunrise type of beaver tail? Is it, let me finish the question, please. Reese's Pieces, marshmallows, lemon, or bacon bits? Yes, lemon. The answer is lemon, he says confidently. Greens? Bacon bits. Bacon bits, okay. It is lemon, all right. All right, good stuff, okay. All right, so, on to round four. We're in it to win it. What is in the average annual snowfall in Ottawa? Is it 270 centimeters, 1,000 centimeters, 100 centimeters, or 180 centimeters? In it to win it? 270. 270, say the profs. Glenergy? We'll say 180. 180, okay. They go for the more conservative one. And it is 270 in it to win it. All right, good stuff. Did you get it right? Yes, you did get okay. it right. <laughs> February is a busy month at the department uh, on campus. There's a few uh, events going on. Um, Billy, uh, what, uh, what sort of things do you want to highlight? Um, well, so in the department, there's uh, our uh, colloquium talk, uh, which is happening next Thursday. Uh, we've got Tom Kempel, a uh, guest speaker from UBC, uh, giving a talk on uh, Georg Zimmel. Um, and uh, he'll also be joining us for an interview, a podcast interview, uh, on uh, a first-year course he teaches on the comic The Watchmen. So very, I am very excited about this. Yeah, so maybe we can have a sort of a graphic novel comic sort of special episode or something like that at some time. Yeah. yeah. 
look at us already. The department podcast is uh, growing, <laughs> you know, all the way uh, from UBC. We get to talk to Tom Kempel. Uh, and there's some also stuff uh, going on regarding the environment, I believe. Yeah, so uh, this term, the winter term, uh, 2020, FOSS has uh, organized uh, what's called Healthy Cities uh, schedule of events uh, centered in the Dominion Charmer Centre. We've already had Zoe Todd from our department in the Department of Indigenous and Canadian Studies. Uh, Jackie Canelli is also going to be speaking on youth homelessness in the city. And also Tanya Davidson has an undergraduate research day that's uh, focused on uh, healthy cities. Wow. Uh, Lots of stuff going on. Um, on this feed, you will be able to listen to some of those things as bonus episodes. So make sure to subscribe. Um, not sure how we're going to do it yet, but, uh, looking forward to Tom Kempel's talk. Uh, we're going to put that out for you listeners somehow. Not, not sure how we're going to do that yet. The next episode, it will be available March 3rd. Uh, but in the meantime, be sure to look out for a bonus episode. Yes, that's right. There is a bonus episode already coming out on the feed. Uh, you know what that means. If you want to listen to it as soon as it comes out, you got to be the cool kids. You got to hit subscribe on your Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to to podcasts. But uh, you know we're on Spotify, Billy. What's Spotify? For? Well, Spot- I've heard of it only messing. Yeah. yeah. Right. So yeah, you know what Spotify? Yeah, okay. it's a car cleaning service. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listeners, if you want to get in on the action, use that premium account that you bought as a treat for yourself to its full potential. Hit subscribe to the department podcast feed. Uh, you'll be able to get all the good stuff as soon as it's released. But you knew that. You're smart. You're out in the world. You know how this stuff works, right? Yeah, yeah. you do. Yeah. You can email us, info at departmentpodcast.ca. Follow us on Twitter at departmentpod. And we do have a website, www.departmentpodcast.ca, where uh, there's a really photogenic kitty on there. Just you know, go see for yourself. Don't don't trust what I whatever I say. Yeah. Go do it. So finally, um, just like to say a big thanks to uh, Department of Sociology and Anthropology, Carleton University, uh, our home department, uh, really for sponsoring this podcast and making it possible. A lot of great things are going on in the department and uh, you know one of the kind of goals of this podcast is to uh, kind of showcase some of that as well as some of the broader things that are happening in Carlton uh, you know more generally as well so um, yeah and that's a wrap for episode one everyone that was good right too long no no Phil you're, you're, you're back in the cycle again you need to get yourself out did I miss something uh, when are we going to perfect Phil don't worry about is it is this it click and submit talk to you soon folks and hey thanks for listening <laughs>